All right, please uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8 this morning. That is Mark 13, 5 through 8. And this morning we find ourselves again in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, and we'll probably be in this chapter for another five or six weeks after today, probably a couple months total. Um, last week I set before you all the interpretive grid that I'll be using as we walk through the Olivet Discourse. Um, if you weren't here or didn't listen to the recording, uh, I strongly recommend that you do so. Or you can talk to me and I'll get you my manuscript that I preached from last week. Um, but you, you probably need to go back and check that out in order to get a better grasp of how I'll be dealing with this text and why. Uh, that first sermon is, is foundational to how I'll be walking through this honestly difficult chapter. Uh, but in last week's sermon, I told you all that I am a partial preterist with regard to the Olivet Discourse. And that simply means that I believe that all of our Lord's words in verses 5 through 30 were fulfilled in the first century, in the time leading up to and the completion of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. I also believe that verse 32 signals a subject change where our Lord moves uh, from speaking about the destruction of the temple to then speaking about his second coming when he will return to judge as we just confessed both the living and the dead. Um, so I think that's how that the discourse should be divided. Verses 5 through 30 have to do with the temple being destroyed. Those things have already happened. And verses 32 and on having to do with the second coming of Christ or his bodily return. Uh, but this morning we'll be considering our Lord's opening words in the discourse. And here we read some very famous, very well-known verses. This is the text where Jesus speaks of wars and rumors of wars earthquakes, famines, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Some of you are kind of nodding your heads, right? This is a very famous passage. And many people believe that these things are to serve as signs that Jesus' second coming is imminent. Right? Raise your hand if you've heard that. All right, yeah, all of us. Some of you didn't raise your hands because you're liars. Um, all of us, as a joke, all of us have heard this. Um, or most of us have heard this. Many people interpret these verses in the Olivet Discourse as having to do with the future immediately preceding the second coming of Christ. Right? That is, that there will be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines that usually pick up in how often that they occur, and they will be harbingers of the end of time. But I aim to show you that that is not the case. Rather, as our Lord says in verse 30, these things were to happen within that generation and serve as signs that the temple would be destroyed within that generation. Um, but I want to be clear, even though I believe that this is how we should understand these words, that does not mean that these verses have nothing to say to us today. Okay, please, please hear me. This, will be, this is important for us. All of Scripture is relevant. All of Scripture speaks to us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, all scripture was written down for our benefit and instruction, right? Referring to what happened to the Israelites in the Old Testament, Paul says these things were written down as an example for you, right? And come, come back this evening. We're going to talk about that verse a little bit more uh, in our catechism. Uh, but just because a prophecy has already been fulfilled does not mean that there's nothing for us to learn from it, right? Consider the Old Testament prophecies that have already come to pass. Though we are not looking for their fulfillment, nevertheless, they teach us many things. Fulfilled prophecies still teach us about God, 
his attributes, his character, his plan of redemption through faith in Christ, his love for his people, his hatred of sin, and many other things. More than that, fulfilled prophecies continue to teach us, and here's an important one, prophecies teach us about moral and ethical principles that the people of God are to live by in order to please the God who has saved us through Christ. Right, so there are many things that fulfilled prophecies speak to us today, and so they are still relevant to us. And the Olivet Discourse is no different in that regard. So then, even as I show you how these prophecies of Jesus have already come to pass, I will still aim to show you what application can be made from them for us today. Right, the Bible is a history book, but it's not merely a history book. It is God's word to us, and it speaks to our daily lives. Right, so just know this. I will be doing a good bit of history in a lot of these sermons showing you how these prophecies have been fulfilled, but I aim to preach this chapter to you, not just give a history lesson. There are things that are to be applied to our lives. Um, one final word of introduction before we dive in. Uh, this sermon and many others that I preach from this chapter are probably going to follow a, the same outline, and this outline can be divided into two major headings, right, just so you know what's coming. First, we will consider the prophecy and its first century fulfillment. And then second, we will consider ethics, principles, reminders, doctrines, things like that that apply to our lives from the fulfilled prophecy. Right, so that's pretty much the two major headings. The prophecy and how it was already fulfilled and what it means for us now. So that's how I plan on dealing with this chapter for the most part. But this text before us speaks of things that have already happened. But today... It will teach us to rest in God's sovereignty and to rejoice in the fact that God has declared that those who trust in Christ are his true temple and his true people, the true Israel. So may God bless us as we consider the words of our Lord in this text. And with that said, would you please stand with me if you're able? Stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 13, verses 5 through 8. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before you this morning eager to hear from you in your word. Uh, but in our own strength, we will profit nothing from our reading or hearing. As you have said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God, it is only by your Holy Spirit that we will benefit from your word. It is not within our power to change our own hearts or make ourselves grow. And so we ask now that you would bless us with a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit this morning. Please teach us and change us. Grant us faith to believe what we hear and mold our wills to obey what you have said. Grant us this morning a sight of our Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And glorify yourself in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Um, now, before we jump into the exposition of our text, let me remind you of the context. We're probably going to do this in a lot of the sermons. Let's consider the context. 
In verses 1 and 2, our Lord, provoked by a disciple who spoke of the beauty of the temple. Look, teacher, what wonderful buildings, what wonderful stuff I'm seeing. Provoked by that, Jesus prophesied and said in verse 2, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Our Lord Jesus has prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. And it would be destroyed because, the, because Israel had rejected their Messiah, Jesus. Because the religious leaders, as well as the people, had refused to submit to Jesus in faith. Right? So because of their rejection of Christ, the judgment of God was going to come upon them. Judgment is coming upon Israel. Just real quick, you say, I thought it's just the temple. How is judgment coming upon the nation? Well, just bear with me for a moment. The temple is the centerpiece of life in Israel. And it's located where? In Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation. Dare I say, the representative nation, rather, representative city of the nation. And so judgment on the temple means judgment on the nation. Right? There's, there's symbolic significance here. As if, imagine if God laid waste at Washington, D.C. Some of you would be happy. <laughs> but if God laid waste to Washington, D.C., would we not see this as a judgment upon our country? Yes, we would. There's symbolic significance to this judgment. And so judgment on the temple means judgment on the nation of Israel. God is finished with the old covenant. He is finished with the ethnic people of Israel, not entirely, but as an intrinsic covenant people, as he had dealt with them under the old covenant. Judgment is coming, and Jesus says so in verse 2. Now, in a brief note here, I must say this, and I will continue to say this. This judgment is a picture. It is a picture of the fate of all who would reject Jesus. That is utter ruin and damnation by God. Hear me. Just, just hear me. This bears repeating always. We, we must remember this. There are no other options. You have, you, have, you have two. Either you receive Christ by faith, or you will be punished eternally for your sins by a just and holy God. There is only one Savior, and you reject Him at your own peril. Right? But know this, justice will be served. Either it was suffered by Christ in your place at the cross, or you will suffer it yourself in an eternal hell. But either way, justice will be done because God is holy. The destruction of the temple is a picture of this judgment. You reject Christ, you are left with your sins and the judgment of God. Remember that as we go through this. You must trust in Christ alone to save you from your sins. There is no other hope. There is no other Savior. But in verse 4, the disciples asked Jesus about the destruction that he had just mentioned in verse 2. They ask in verse 4, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Listen, this is what kicks off the whole Olivet Discourse. You got to remember that. Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed and then the disciples ask a two-part question. When... And what will be the sign? Now, their questions clearly have to do with the temple. That is the only thing in the context, isn't there? Verse 2, he said the temple's getting destroyed. And they say, when? What are they talking about? Clearly, they're talking about the temple. What will be the signs when all these things are going to be accomplished? What are they talking about? All these things have to do with the process of destruction for the temple. If you're reading the text honestly, right, trying to come as, 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 uh, as objectively as we can, this is the only thing... This is the only thing in the context. There's nothing else mentioned that they ask. There's nothing else to refer to here. 
right? So when and what will be the signs of the temple being destroyed? And Jesus has a history of answering the questions of the disciples, right? We read in the Gospels, he constantly answers their questions. And our Lord is doing the same here in the Olivet Discourse. He's answering the questions, when and what will be the sign? And let's also not forget verse 30. Look there, this is very important. This is the time text of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Jesus says, quite clearly, I might add, and I can defend this if you weren't here last week, talk to me after the sermon, I'll defend this uh, to you. Jesus says quite clearly that the present generation, what present generation? The generation of then living people when he spoke would not pass away until all these things take place. Now, what are all these things? We'll look at verse four again. What will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? What are they talking about? The destruction of the temple. Clearly, it's the same thing. All these things and all these things. There's a match there. Jesus is talking about what they were talking about. So our Lord says that within the generation he was speaking to, that is within the first century generation, all of what he says in verses 5 through 30 would take place. Everything he has said up to that point, all these things I know some of you are still looking at verses, I think probably 26 and 27 or 27 and 28, and you're saying, how? Give me time. We'll get there. We'll get there. But Jesus sets our interpretive grid for us, doesn't he? With his predictive statement in verse 30, unless we want to be guilty of saying he was wrong in his prophecy, Jesus sets the interpretive grid. He says this prophecy would be fulfilled in the first century. And hear me, it was. If we understand it rightly, you can see that it was. Right? When we understand the Old Testament prophetic language he used, the established symbolism that he used that you get from the Old Testament, remember he's a Jew. He's more than a man, but in his humanity he's a Jew. When you consider the New Testament historical record and also some secular historical records from the first century, you can see that Jesus' words indeed came to pass just as he promised. And that's what we're looking for this morning. That's what I want to show you first. So then we come to our first major heading of the sermon, the initial signs of the temple's destruction and their first century fulfillment. And just so you know, uh, I won't be going exactly verse by verse through this passage like I normally do. I'm going to cover it kind of topically, but I will cover, I think, all of the phrases in verses 5 through 8. Just give me time. Uh, first, we read in verse 6, Jesus says, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now, what do you mean? They will say, I am he. Now, there's a parallel for this in Matthew 24, verse 5. Matthew's version of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus says, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. I am he. Who is he? The Christ. I am the Messiah. So Jesus here in Mark speaks of false Christs, false messiahs. And he says, people will come in my name. Now, this doesn't mean that they would literally claim to be Jesus himself. Right, no self-respecting Jew after the death and resurrection of Christ would say that they were the one who was crucified not too long ago. Right, They wouldn't have done that. Rather, that they will come claiming his authority. They will come in his name, in his authority, claiming the title of Messiah. They will come and try to take to themselves his prerogatives as the Lord. Again, many will come and try to take his place as Messiah. 
such people, to use the Apostle John's language from his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, these people are antichrists. And you say, I thought we're talking about like one big times antichrist figure. No, not necessarily. Antichrist, anti means opposed to or replacement in the Greek. Right? These, are, these men, these false messiahs Jesus is talking about are opposed to the true Christ. That is Jesus. And what are they trying to do? They're attempting to set themselves up as the Messiah in his place. These people are literally antichrists. They are claiming to be Christ falsely. They're trying to take his place. They are liars. They are fakes. They are deceivers. Jesus says they will come. And they will promise deliverance and salvation. Right? Especially from Rome. Remember that. They, 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 they would promise salvation from Rome, which is exactly what the Jews in the first century were looking for out of the Messiah. So many will come and claim to be the Messiah. Many are going to come and claim, I can save you from Rome. They'll say, it's now time for Israel to take over the world. Again, as the first century Jews were expecting. And these false messiahs will come and say, I can lead you into this. And Jesus says, they will deceive many. They will deceive many. They will lead many astray. Astray from what? Astray from the true Christ, Jesus, the one who offers true and full salvation. They will be led astray. And believe it or not, this was actually somewhat common in that day. We're going to do some history in a lot of this. Uh, There was much messianic fervor among the people of Israel uh, in the time leading up to and after uh, the first coming of our Lord. They were expecting the Messiah to come, but as, as you know very sadly, when the Messiah came, they rejected him. And so, as they do to this day, they continue to look for another one. They continue to look for another Messiah. It's one of the great, awful things about Judaism is they did not recognize their king, and they're still looking for one. We actually read of false messiahs who had arisen in the first century in the book of Acts. We're going to go through Acts a little bit, and you're going to see some stuff maybe you never caught before. In Acts chapter 5, verses 35 through 37, we read this. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. These are the words of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. You remember the context? He's, he's, he's saying, hey, if this is not of God, these, these men preaching about Jesus, if it's not of God, it'll go away. Remember what happened to Theodos and Judas the Galilean? It'll happen to them too. But if it is from God, be careful. If their preaching is from God and Jesus really is the Messiah, you can't stop it. Right? That's what Gamaliel's talking about there. But he mentions two false messiahs, doesn't he? Theodos and Judas the Galilean. And these men had risen up before Christ's public ministry. He says Judas the Galilean came up during the time of the census. What census? Well, the, the Christmas story census that you read about in Luke chapter 2. So one before him and him. So these men rose up and they claimed to be somebody. What does that mean? Somebody theologically significant. They claimed to be someone important and they drew people to themselves. Right? I, I assume, no doubt, with, with, with promises of deliverance and then got themselves killed. That's what Gamaliel said happened. So two who came before Christ's time, false messiahs. We read of another possible false messiah in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. 
But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Or as the King James says, this man is the great power of God. So this is Simon the Magician, or if you grew up like me on the King James Version, Simon Magus, you've heard of him, this is Simon the Magician. He arose after the time of Christ, and apparently, for a while, before professing faith in Christ, probably falsely professing, but he claimed to be someone important and accepted the title, the great power of God. Very possibly, this man is a false messiah. He claims to be somebody great, he does it amongst the Samaritans. Right, So these, these, these are people of somewhat Jewish ancestry who were also looking for the Messiah. You remember the woman at the well? She was a Samaritan. She knew about the Messiah. So this is probably a false Messiah, Simon the Magician. We read of another false Messiah in Acts chapter, chapter 21, verse 38. There, some context, Paul is being questioned by a soldier about his identity. It's kind of funny. He doesn't know who Paul is. He just knows that Paul is a Jew who speaks Greek. And the Egyptians had Jews who spoke Greek. So here's what the man says, Acts 21, 38, talking to Paul. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Real quick, the assassins, the Sicarii, I think is what they were called. The, the dagger men, literally is what it's called because they would assassinate people with daggers. Um, they were a Jewish band of zealots who were awaiting the Messiah. So the first century historian Josephus tells us about this Egyptian, like corroborating this story with the Bible, who stirred up trouble against Rome by leading these Jewish zealots out into the wilderness. This is what this man's talking about in Acts chapter 21, and he wonders, is Paul that guy? This man, this Egyptian Jew who led this revolt, was a false Messiah who promised deliverance from Rome. So here we read of two false messiahs who came before Christ and two who came after, right? And they are recorded in the Bible itself. But that's not even to consider the historical record, the, the secular historical record. I won't belabor you with long uh, quotations, but I, I, can, I can give you the books if you'd like to read them sometime. Josephus, the first century historian, and others, like the church historian Eusebius, records that there were a number of frauds who rose up and deceived many in the first century. And they did so how? By promising them freedom from the Romans and by false prophecy. They promised to usher in a time of earthly peace and freedom of, from Rome for Israel, just like the Jews believed that the Messiah would do. And Josephus records about 16 different people who did this. 16, in addition to the two we read about in Scripture. Just like Jesus said what happened, there were many false messiahs in the first century who led many people astray prior to the destruction of the temple. You see that? This has been fulfilled. It happened, just like Jesus said. But verse 5, notice the disciples were to see that no one leads you astray. There's a sermon in this, and we'll get to it about midway through the Olivet Discourse whenever Jesus mentions false, false Christs again. See to it that no one leads you astray. Jesus says, you guys know who the Messiah is, and you know that there is only one. They knew who Jesus is, and he said, do not be led astray by these false messiahs, because you already know there is only one, and I am he. 
Right? So take that with you as a piece of application. Don't be led astray by the false Christs that you hear, the Oneness Pentecostals and the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and all the other cults that are pushing towards you, or even the secularists who say Jesus was just a, a good moral hippie teacher. False Christs is what they're preaching to you, but you know who the true Christ is. Don't be led astray. But the second thing our Lord mentions is in verses 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, ah, this one gets your attention, doesn't it? When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Skipping down to verse 8. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This is one of the most famous lines in the Olivet Discourse. In my experience, this is probably the most quoted one that I hear. Uh, anytime that a war breaks out, People quote it all the time, and they think the end of history is upon us. I run a cash register two days a week in Minford, Ohio, right? Some of you are laughing. It's not a joke. That's what I do. Uh, <laughs> and every time that there's a battle, skirmish, or war, the Christians, whom I love, come into the store, and they say, well, you know, Jesus says, man, wars and rumors of wars every time, every time, especially with this war between Ukraine and Russia. People are coming in all the time. Man, the end is upon us. Wars and rumors of wars. And I'm not mocking anybody. I'm really not. I'm just saying I hear it all the time. And some of you are nodding your heads because you hear this stuff all the time. But know this. Let's consider its first century fulfillment. The word for war here in the Greek does not necessarily refer to massive world wars. It doesn't. It's applied sometimes in the New Testament to two people fighting amongst each other. Right? It can be applied to small battles and skirmishes, and likewise, it can be applied to huge wars. It's kind of a catch-all for fighting. And Jesus says there will be many wars and fights and battles break out, along with rumors of coming wars and destruction before the temple is brought down. And what's interesting, catch this, when Jesus says this, this is a time of unprecedented peace in the Roman Empire. When Jesus says these words, you've, maybe if you've read history, you've heard of the Pax Romana, that is the peace of Rome. Rome pretty much had things on lock. Everything was pretty much under control, right, which is actually the providence of God. The first couple of decades of the spread of the gospel, lots of peace, right? You could get where you needed to go to preach the gospel. So this is during the peace of Rome. Jesus says, oh, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, right? There was not much fighting going on at the time, but Jesus says wars and rumors of wars will come. Now, some of you maybe have heard of the Roman historian Tacitus, very famous uh, second century historian, uh, first and second century. He lived from A.D. 56 to A.D. 117. In his history, the annals of history, he wrote this. I am entering on the history of a period rich in disasters, frightful in its wars, torn by civil strife, and even in peace full of horrors. There were three civil wars. There were more with foreign armies. There were often wars that had both characters at once. That's what Tacitus writes about the time that he records. The time after Jesus spoke was full of war. There are records, uh, again, we're doing a history lesson, bear with me. There are records of outbreaks of fighting between the Jews and others in Mesopotamia, Jerusalem, Caesarea, Scythopolis, Alexandria, and Damascus. And at each place, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of Jews are slaughtered. Lots of fighting. There were lots of Jewish uprisings in the first century, and it never went well for them. I'll paraphrase now from R.T. Francis' commentary. Now, the years before Caesar Tiberius and Caesar Nero, or rather, the, the years between Caesar Tiberius and Caesar Nero were fairly peaceful. 
But someone living in Israel at the time may have heard of the wars in Parthia, that's in AD 36, or the war between Antipas and Aretas, in which Rome became involved, AD 36 and 37, not to mention a series of local uprisings which were ruthlessly put down by the Romans in the years before the Jewish war that began in AD 66. That ends with the destruction of the temple. The ancient historian Tacitus, again, spoke of all kinds of military events. He spoke of, and I quote, disturbances in Germany, commotions in Africa, commotions in Thrace, insurrections in Gaul, intrigues amongst the Parthians, the war in Britain, and the war in Armenia. It's a lot. A lot of wars in a pretty short period of time. And all of this broke out during a declared time of peace in Rome. It would be a sign then, wouldn't it? No one saw it coming. There was an unprecedented time of peace, and then boom, within a couple of decades, all this fighting starts breaking out. They were not expected, and thus they serve as signs. R.C. Sproul's commentary pointed this out too. There was actually a rumor of a war that ended up just being a rumor as well. I thought this was interesting. In A.D. 40, the emperor Caligula, you guys have heard of him, Caligula tried to set up a statue of himself in the temple, and the Jews weren't having it. If you know anything about Jewish history, after the Babylonian exile, they were not cool with images and idols anymore. They finally learned their lesson. There were protests, violent protests in Jerusalem over this. And from these protests came a rumor that the Romans were going to come and use military force to stop the protests and put the statue in the temple as the emperor wanted. But it never happened. It was just a rumor. And no actual war broke out between Israel and Rome until AD 66. Wars and rumors of wars. My brothers and sisters, clearly, these things happened before the destruction of the temple. History bears this out. And the words of our Lord came to pass exactly as he said that they would. The third thing that Jesus mentions is in verse 8. There will be earthquakes in various places. Prior to the destruction of the temple, there will be earthquakes. We have records of this in the Bible itself. At Jesus' death, there was an earthquake, Matthew chapter 27. At his resurrection, there was another earthquake, Matthew chapter 28. We read of another earthquake in Acts chapter 16. You remember when Paul and Silas were freed from their prison? A great earthquake happened. So there are three earthquakes within a short period of time after our Lord prophesied this, recorded in Scripture, but that's not all. Again, secular history tells us there were many other earthquakes. There was one in Asia Minor in AD 61, another in Pompeii, AD 63, and another huge one in Jerusalem in AD 67. Believe it or not, there are more than these. Historical accounts tell us there were earthquakes in Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Chios, Samos, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Colossae, Campania, Rome, and Judea, all in the years leading up to AD 70. I won't labor the point because there's not a whole lot to say, is there? Lots of earthquakes. A lot. That's a lot, man. And listen, these are earthquakes. They didn't have the Richter scale where we can pick up on like a nothing earthquake now and everyone was like, oh my gosh, we had an earthquake yesterday. I had no clue. If the ancient historians are recording we had an earthquake, it was an earthquake. <laughs> right? Like you had to feel it to know it happened. And all of these happened in the first century, just like Jesus said. And they happened in various places. That's a lot of different places I just read to you. Lots of earthquakes, different places. The last thing Jesus mentions in our text is in verse 8 as well. He says, there will be famines. And I have heard this with the food shortages right now. I have heard people coming up to me and saying, hey, there will be famines, man. Like, okay, let's consider our first century. In the time leading up to the destruction of the temple, 
Jesus says there will be famines and food shortages. History tells us that in AD 46, there was a horrible famine. Some historians tell us it's from AD 41 to AD 51, or rather AD 40 to 51. There are lots of famines. And once again, we have a biblical record of this. Maybe you missed this. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 29, we read a prophecy. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place during the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Now it says all the world would have a famine. That, that word there in the Greek means all the known world with a reference to the Roman Empire. And indeed this happened. We have historical records of this. More than that, you can read in the Apostle Paul's letters. He's always taking up collections, right, for the hungry saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 mentions this. Romans chapter 15 Right, actually, Romans 16 is like the Lord's Day text we like to argue from. When you are gathered together on the first day of the week, take up your offering so that I don't have to collect it when I come. Right, for what? For relief for the saints in Judea. They were hungry because there was a great famine. The historian Tacitus once again records something interesting for us here. He says that in the great capital city of Rome in AD 51, there was only about 15 days worth of food stocked up in the city. That is not very much food to have in supply in the capital city. And listen, what do we know about politicians? If there's one place where there's still going to be food, it's where all the politicians and the emperors live. And there's only 15 days worth of food there. How, imagine how bad it must have been everywhere else. There was a great famine. There were many famines, just as Jesus said would happen. So, let's turn our attention now, having went through those things and seeing they indeed happen as Jesus said they would, Let's turn our attention now. Some of you are looking at verse 7 and saying, ah, how do you get around that one? I'm, looking, I'm not trying to get around anything. Jesus says these things would happen, but the end is not yet. People say, ah, the end, right? That's the end of history. That's the return of Christ. I don't think that's the case, <laughs> obviously. I don't think that this means the end of the world. Remember, verse 30 is our controlling text. Jesus says all these things would happen within that generation. Okay, so the time text tells us this can't be a reference to the end of the world. But not only that, let's consider briefly the word that Mark uses for end here. Hang in here with me, guys. This stuff's important. This isn't just about me trying to make a, a, an argument that you've never heard. This is about whether or not Jesus is a liar. Think about it that way. Verse 30, he tells us when it's going to happen. If he's wrong, he's a liar and he's not the Christ. This is serious. The word Mark uses for end here is telos, and it means end or completion of a process, finish, fulfillment, outcome. It does not necessarily mean the end of the world. It's not a technical word like that. Now, hear me. I know what it sounds like to modern Christian ears who have been conditioned by the Left Behind books and awful Nicolas Cage films. It may sound like a technical term, right, the end, but it's not. The context in which the word is used will determine how we are to understand the word. And let me give you some examples of telos being used in the New Testament. Mark chapter 3, verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Right? Jesus says that the devil was coming to an end, that he was being destroyed and coming to an end. That is a completion of his unbridled power. The word there is not a reference to the end of time. 
I'll give you one other example that I could give you more. Matthew 26, 58. And Peter was following Jesus at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Peter wanted to see the end. This isn't even a reference to the end of Jesus' life, because Jesus wasn't going to be executed there, and Peter knew that. Rather, Jesus, or rather, Peter wanted to see the end of Jesus' trial, the outcome of it, the completion of his trial. Right, so I hope you can see, and again, that's only two examples, but for the sake of time, I'll cut more out. I, I hope that you can see that the word telos does not have to refer to the end of the world. And it doesn't here in Mark 13, 7. The context dictates the meaning. And verses 2 through 4 tell us Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. So then, he's not talking about the end of history. He's talking about the end of the temple. The completion of the destruction of the temple that God was going to bring upon Israel in AD 70. More than that, these things, Jesus talks about the false Christ, wars, uh, famines, earthquakes. These things... While they are signs that the temple will come down, notice that they do not declare that these things will happen immediately. Jesus says the end is not yet. Jesus does not want his disciples to prematurely expect the end of the temple. So just real quick, this one made me chuckle. It's actually ironic that people point to these verses to say the end of the world is upon us because they're wrong on both accounts. The context and the meaning of the signs. Jesus says the end is not yet. But people will point at these sides and say, the end is nigh. Jesus says, no, it's not. Not even in the first century, right? The end is not yet. So it's kind of funny. They get the context wrong, and they get the meaning of the signs wrong. Not only that, but as the end of verse 8 says, all the things Jesus has mentioned here are but the beginning of the birth pains. Right? These are the initial signs of the coming destruction. When these things start happening in that generation, you can know that the temple destruction is bound to happen as well. Right? So hear me. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines are like previews. They're like previews to the major signs that Jesus will begin to speak of in verse 14 and following. But let me talk briefly about this birth pains imagery. It's, it's an Old Testament image, and it's often used in prophecies to describe the suffering of cities nations, uh, regions under God's judgment. Some examples if you're a note taker. Isaiah 13, 8, Jeremiah 6, 24, Jeremiah 22, 23. These are all examples of this birth pains uh, imagery. And these texts are all judgment texts. I'll give you one example. I'll read Isaiah 13, 8. Speaking of the judgment of God against Babylon, Isaiah writes this. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. So again, this is an Old Testament image of suffering that comes when God judges you. Like a woman in the agony of giving labor. But judgment isn't the only context in which this language is used. Oddly enough, in the New Testament, this language of birth pains can mean pain that leads to something positive. Famous phrase uh, found in Galatians 4.19. Paul says he is as a woman in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in the Galatians. Right? So pain of childbirth that leads to what? Christ being formed in them. Pain leads to something glorious. Romans 8.22, the creation up until now has grown as a woman in childbirth. Right? That, that is, creation is groaning in anticipation of the end when the sons of God are revealed. 
right? So pain leads to something glorious. So a baby of sorts is coming, and that's good. Here in Mark 13, 8, there's probably a mix of both the positive and negative imagery. I think the context maybe leans a little bit more heavily to the negative, but there's, I think there's a ray of hope for us to see, and we'll get to that uh, at the end of the sermon. Just hold on. Remember the birth pains, positive. But I want you to see that Jesus gives preliminary signs in our text, things that will serve of a warning of what is coming. These birth pains, these four things that he's mentioned, are but the beginning of birth pains. The end is not yet, and who knows how long the birth pains will last. We know that they will be finished within that generation, but nobody knows exactly then. And Jesus does not want his disciples to prematurely expect the destruction of the temple. They are signs of what is to come, but the end is not yet. Brothers and sisters, in light of all of that, these things happened just like Jesus said that they would. That's, that's a big takeaway that you're going to hear in, in this series through this chapter. Jesus is a true prophet, is he not? As we confess often, he is our prophet, priest, and king. Now, some people, and I don't know if you're skeptical like me, like I was when I first came across this interpretation, um, I thought, man, because it's mainly post-millennial guys who are arguing for this interpretation. By the way, there are pre-mills, post-mills, and ah-mills who all take this position. Uh, if you're not into eschatology, I just spoke gibberish for the last 30 seconds, but you'll be all right. Um, I used to think, man, these guys are just trying to undo a scary portion of Scripture. That's what I first thought whenever I heard this interpretation. Jesus is talking about the end, and you're trying to make him not talk about the end because it's scary. That's not what I'm doing here. If you're skeptical like I was, that's not what I'm trying to do. The interpretation I'm laying before you is not an attempt to undo a scary portion of Scripture. Rather, it is a vindication of the words of Jesus in verse 30. He was telling the truth. And I want you all to see that. Everything in this text happened how and when Jesus said it would. This interpretation is just a vindication of what Jesus said. He's a true prophet. So please hear me. Early application for you. You can believe the Bible. R.C. Sproul would put it this way. This is one of the best apologetics we have that the Bible's true. The Gospels were written before the temple came down. How did Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at least the synoptic Gospels, how did they know to write this down 20 or 30 years before it happened? And we know that they were all written 20 or 30 years before the temple came down. The Bible's true. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they were given utterance. They wrote. God spoke and they wrote. The book that you hold is the very word of God. And Jesus Christ is no liar. And he's not a misguided lunatic. And he's not a false Messiah. He is the true prophet that Moses said would come, who is the son of God who came into the world to save sinners. And you can believe everything that comes out of his mouth. And the Olivet Discourse is a shining proof of that. Know that. But before we get into more application for this morning, let me say one more thing. I'm going to maybe become a little bit of a smart aleck here. Shocker. Here we go. So many people hear of things happening in our day that sound like the things in these verses we've read this morning, and they begin to predict or at least say that the end is nigh. Right? Most people have learned their lesson to not try to set dates, but not everyone. 
But people will say, the end is nigh, the end is clearly upon us. Can you not see the wars and rumors of wars and the famines and the earthquakes and all of this? Jesus is clearly going to come back within our lifetime. We've all grown up with this, haven't we? Right? We've all grown up with this. Our parents grew up with this. Our grandparents grew up with this. Constant fear. Right? I don't know if about you guys... I, even as a new Christian, I was afraid of the idea that Jesus was going to come back, which is our, the blessed hope, as Paul calls it. And I was like, ah, I hope that doesn't happen in my life. It's funny. Constant fear, constant. Check this out. How often does this happen? They read the newspaper in one hand and the Olivet Discourse in the other hand. Right? Or the newspaper in one hand and the book of Revelation in the other hand, looking for signs of the end. Again, as a cashier, it gets annoying. Every time something happens, someone picks the newspaper up. Hey, did you see that? You're a preacher. I'm like, oh, yeah, let's, I don't want to get into this with you. Especially after coming to this interpretation, everyone just gets mad at me now. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> then they think I'm not a Christian. <laughs> just buckle up. If you take this interpretation, people will be like, so you don't believe Jesus is coming back? It's not what I said. I said that that text doesn't mean what you think it means. Right, but these constant false predictions and foolish hysteria, we're almost used to it, aren't we? At least I, I kind of am. I have personally, and here's where I'm going to be a smart aleck, I have lived through four end-of-the-world prediction cycles in my 30 years. Y2K? Remember that one? Yeah, some of you are nodding your heads, right? Y2K? 9-11? Not, not making light of 9-11 at all, but everyone said, this is it. This is it, because we had never been attacked on our own soil. Not for a long time, anyway. Not never, I'm sorry. It's been a long time since the continental United States had been attacked. And they said, this is the end. The 2012 Mayan calendar, which for some reason Christians thought was relevant to us, even though a bunch of pagans wrote it. That weird. Um, COVID-19, right? That, this is the end, man. Like pestilences that Luke spoke of in the Olivet Discourse. This is it. The rider went forth on his horse. He's making everyone sick, right? Revelation. This is the it. Right? And now I'm living in my fifth one. And you all are living through it with me, with the Ukraine-Russia war. This is it, man. Some of you who are a little bit older live through more than this. Some of you older people maybe remember 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. That was a book. You can still buy it on Amazon. I kind of want to do it. <laughs> yeah, for some reason, they just didn't burn all the copies in 1989. I don't understand. <laughs> Embarrassing stuff, isn't it? But the truth is, hear me, such an interpretation of the Olivet Discourse, such theology that is called dispensationalism, dispensational premillennialism, this rapture theology that most of us grew up with did not exist until the late 1800s. It didn't. And since then, it has gained popularity. And check this out. Since this new novel theology came out, every single generation has thought it was the final generation. They've all been wrong. And that's because things like wars, rumors of wars, false Christs, and earthquakes, and other hardships and disasters occur all the time. But we see the foolishness of that when we read the Olivet Discourse properly, don't we? Jesus himself said that these things do not signify the end of the world. Rather, they signified, past tense, the end of the temple. Now hear me, I'm not trying to downplay how bad things are right now, okay? Some of you think that I'm like, I'm like having a pipe dream because I'm post-millennialist. I mean, you can think that if you want. I'm also very pessimistic about the immediate future of the world. Long term, I think Christ is going to have dominion. 
right? Dare I say it, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's what Psalm 72 says. But in the immediate future, I think we're in, unless God grants great repentance on a national and international scale, we are in a lot of trouble. I'm not trying to downplay how bad things are. But my point is this. Don't be fooled by these people who try to date set or constantly convince you that this must be the end. Don't be fooled by that. Don't buy into it. It's not true. Okay? If you, if you give an honest reading of the New Testament, there are many things that still have to happen before Christ returns. I can defend this later if you want me to. I'm coming off my notes here for a minute. There are things that the New Testament tells us that must happen prior to the return of Christ that this idea that he could return any second is not true. And no one believed that until the late 1800s. Certain things have to happen first that haven't happened. Only after those things happen will Jesus' return become imminent. In fact, Jesus says that life will be going on normally before he comes. Read the end of Mark 13. Read the end of Matthew 24. As it was in the days of Noah, people will be marrying and giving in marriage, and people will be working, and everything will be going on just like it always has, and then boom, he comes. Dare I say it, it actually sounds like a peaceful time before he comes. No one will expect it. So listen, Jesus will come. Yes, the world will end someday, but don't buy into the hype. Right? After all, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, virgins said, it was a long time before he came. It was a long time. And after the destruction of the temple, wars, rumors of wars, false Christs, Christs earthquakes, and famines no longer have prophetic significance. They are just part of life now. So then, the things in our text have come and gone as far as our Lord's prophecy is concerned. But that does not mean that there's nothing for us to learn today and apply today. God has something for us in this text in 2022 from this prophecy that was fulfilled almost 2,000 years ago. I have two things I want to lay before you. So bear with me. First, here's your application. Jesus told his disciples, do not be alarmed. This must take place. Verse 7, this must take place. Now, alarmed means afraid. Jesus told his disciples that when they saw all the things he mentioned taking place, don't be afraid. Now, let me be clear. There's a difference between being concerned and being afraid. We should be concerned when we see wicked things happening around us. We should be concerned when we hear threats against the church going on around us. We should plan ahead if we should. We should try to avoid suffering if we can. Somebody said, that doesn't sound very uh, noble. Uh, Paul ran away a couple of different times when he knew someone was going to try to kill him in the city. Suffering for suffering's sake is not honorable. And it brings no glory. It's when you're put in the position where it's suffer or deny Christ. If i got a third option, I'm getting away from the suffering. But when it's suffering or deny Christ, you say, kill me. But suffering for suffering's sake, no, we should be concerned. We should try to avoid suffering if we can, if we can do it sinlessly. But brothers and sisters, we are not to be afraid. Be concerned, but don't be afraid. We must not sit around and wring our hands and fret about what is happening around us or what the future may hold. Jesus tells them, do not be afraid. What a word for us today. As I've said already, right? So I'm not trying to turn this into a sermon on the end. You guys know my position on that. But you look around national and international scale and everything is in disarray. 
We're going through some serious inflation. I just spent 250 bucks at the grocery store last night getting nothing. Yeah, y'all are nodding your heads, right? Yeah, we're, who knows when it's going to stop? There's a war in Europe that we might be involved in soon. Some of the ones we love have already been sent away from us because of this war. For some of you, job security is a thing of the past. Christianity is growing more and more hated in our culture. And that's not to mention personal issues of health, difficult family dynamics, deteriorating relationships that some of us deal with. There are many things that happen on a big scale and on a small scale in our lives that tempt us to be afraid. And many people, even Christians, fret and worry and drive themselves crazy with anxiety over these things. But what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. Why? These things must take place. Just like with the disciples and these things in the first century, these things must take place. Now hear me. What what am I doing here? That word must signifies divine necessity. It has to happen. You say, well, how are you loading all that into one term? Listen, if there is a God in heaven who reigns over all things and Jesus says this must happen, then guess who says it must happen? God! If it happens, it must. It is divine necessity. The same thing is true for us today as it was for the disciples in the first century. Hear me. Here's your phrase. Whatever takes place must take place. That's not fatalism. That is, there is a God who reigns over all things. So whatever takes place must take place. Hear me. Everything may not be going according to your plan, but everything is going according to plan. We're Calvinists. Maybe not all of you, most of us are. And it's time that we act like it. I mean it. Don't be afraid. It may not be going according to my plan, but it is going according to plan. God's plan. His plan for the world. It's all right on schedule. Whatever takes place must take place. It's part of God's overarching plan for His glory and the good of His people. Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. All things may be very mysterious to us and things are often very uncertain to us, but not to the one who holds all things in his hands. Not to the one who controls all things. Hear me. God has not been ungodded. He has not been dethroned. He is still very much in charge. And what seems to be chaos to us, and is chaos to us, is part of his holy plan. Hear me. Nothing is by accident. To say that something happened by accident is to declare yourself an atheist. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing is arbitrary. All things come to pass, and they happen by divine ordination. And they are leading to the salvation of the people of God and the consummation of all things at the return of our Lord Jesus. So my dear brothers and sisters, do not be alarmed. Not one hair from your head can be harmed apart from the will of your Father. He reigns, and he loves you. And he's proven his love for you in the cross of Christ, where he gave his son that you might go free. You are in that God's hands. Do not be alarmed. Whatever takes place must take place. Hold that. Hold that. And if everything's going great for you right now, and for some reason the inflation's not hitting you, I don't know how that's happening, everything's good in your life, put it in your back pocket. You'll need it. Trials will come.
But a final piece of application, and this one's a bit longer. But you've all seen films. Bear with me. Bear with me. A final piece of application has to do with Jesus' words, and I'm about to get quite theological on you. I know I just did. I'm going to do it again. Jesus says these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. So all of these things Jesus mentioned were the beginning of something else. Certainly, it was the beginning of the period of the temple's destruction. The birth pains would give way to the baby of destruction. But I think, as I said earlier, the New Testament use of this phrase, birth pains, has positive connotations sometimes. So in light of that, and the rest of this chapter, and the context of the rest of the New Testament, I think that there's something beautiful for us to see here. Something beautiful was coming through the awful judgment of God. The church age. The church age. A new beginning. Let me explain. Bear with me. When you read the book of Acts, you notice that the church and ethnic Israel are kind of intertwined, aren't they? Some things are kind of confusing. The church is very Jewish. right? Uh, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem would visit the temple for worship. The Christians elsewhere would often go to synagogues on the Jewish Sabbath. It seems that some were observing the Jewish Sabbath and the Lord's Day, right? So the last and first day of the week. Even the Apostle Paul, if this ever struck you as weird, he kept a Nazarite vow, and he went to the temple and offered the things appropriate for a Nazarite vow. Judaism and Christianity were considered basically the same thing by most Gentiles, right? In fact, if you read the book of Acts, the Gentiles sometimes considered Christianity to be a cult or sect within Judaism, not only that, but you can read in First and Second Thessalonians, Acts, and Revelation, you can read about how the Jews were a constant source of suffering to the infant church, can't you? Beyond that, you can read in Acts, Philippians, and Galatians how false brethren crept in and spread the Judaizing heresy, a heresy that taught that you had to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved. Taking all of that together, then, you can see that apostate Judaism was a huge hindrance on the spread of Christianity, wasn't it? Is bad. It was a hindrance to the spread of the gospel. It caused confusion for some concerning its relationship to Christianity. And there were many unbelieving Jews who did whatever they could to try to stop Christianity from growing. But hear me, when the temple was destroyed, all of that came to an end. All of it came to an end. There was no more confusion about anything. The Jews were dispersed, the temple was over, their religious system was done, and God drew a line right down the middle and put his people, the church, on one side and Jews on the other. Christianity and Judaism distinct from each other. There was no more confusion in worship. Judaizing pretty much came to an end. And why? Because God made it very clear that the old order was done. God was finished with it. Ethnic Israel was no longer the people of God. The temple was no longer his house. And Israel had no longer any voice in religion. It was over with, and it was over with by the definitive action of Almighty God in AD 70, when the temple was brought down. But on the other hand, look at Christianity. What happened? It continued to flourish. It continued to grow. And though there were still many hindrances, especially the persecution brought on by the Roman Empire and centuries to follow, the Jews were no longer much of an issue, were they? Christianity then began to be seen more clearly as a religion for the world and not just for the Jews. And it exploded, didn't it? You ever wondered how you can be born this far away from Jerusalem and you know who Jesus is? It's because it exploded. The gospel went everywhere as we see down to this day. 
with his judgment upon Israel and the destruction of the temple, God made a distinction and began to clearly own his true people. Hear me. God's people are the church. There are some theologians out there who will tell you, no, God's people are still Israel. No, they're not. God's people are the church. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and no others. None others. Nothing could be clearer now. Nothing could be clearer. Out of the birth pain, something glorious was born. The full and pure church age of human history that will continue until the return of our Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there will never be a return to Judaism. There won't. There will never be a return. There will not be a third temple built. There will never be a return to Judaism. The Christ has come. And we will never go back to the shadows that are the Old Covenant. The substance is here in Christ. You see, here's a beautiful thing. I want to encourage you with this, actually. I'm not just do, talking theology here. See how this applies to you. Just because the physical temple was torn down does not mean that God would have no temple. In Ephesians 2, as Paul says, and 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told the church is now God's temple. The church is God's house, and we are all holy stones being built up into one, one edifice with Christ as the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets as the foundation. We each are stones who are indwelt by God himself like the Holy of Holies was. By the Holy Spirit of God, we are indwelt by God. As Paul says in Galatians 6, we are the Israel of God. Christians are the true Jews, as Paul says in Romans 1 and 2. Why? Because we have been circumcised inwardly in our hearts. And as Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 31, we have God's law written in our hearts. Make no mistake, the physical temple was destroyed, but God still has a temple and still has a people, and it is the church. And God has made this publicly known. The church is his holy house, and those who trust Christ are his children, whether they are Jew or Gentile. The Jews have not been utterly cast off. They can join the church through faith in Christ, through faith in their Messiah. And I believe Romans 11 teaches us they will. Give it time. It's one of those things that has to happen before he comes. The old order is gone. The old covenant is dead. And a new covenant inaugurated in the blood of Christ Jesus our Lord. A covenant that saves because Christ lived, died, and is risen. The covenant that was promised from Genesis 3.15 onward has come. Hebrews 8.13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And please hear me. The church will continue to grow. It will. Until the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Sinners will continue to be brought in through faith in Christ. We are living in the age of the Messiah. We are in the blessed last days that the prophets spoke of. These last days that began after Christ died, was raised, and ascended into heaven. Something more glorious and better than Israel has come. Something better than an old covenant has come. And by destroying the temple, God has made it clear to the world that something better has come. And as the author of Hebrews says, as Stephen's going to read to us in just a few moments, the old things have been shaken and removed, and the unshakable kingdom of Christ has come. This kingdom of which we have become citizens by God's grace through faith in Christ. So then, in conclusion, let me say this. Do not be afraid. 
but rather rejoice because God has made clear who his people are. And by his grace, you who believe on Christ have been counted in that number. You are his people and you are in his hand. Do not be afraid. Instead, rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word that says many things to us. Your word that is true as we've seen what Jesus said happened just as Jesus said it would. Your word that tells us who your people are and your people are those who trust in Christ. Your word that tells us of Christ who brought a new and better covenant inaugurated in his blood that saves sinners with better promises. We praise you. And we ask God that you would help us to not bury our head in the sand about the world, that, the things that are going on around us in the world, but God, that we would see what's going on and be wise, but nevertheless be always full of joy because we know that we belong to you and you have made it clear that we belong to you. Teach us to trust you and teach us to rejoice always in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.